Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. This is Writing Class Radio, and I'm Andrea Askowitz, the teacher of the class. And I'm Allison Langer, a student in the class. Together, we produce this podcast for people who love true personal stories and want to learn a little bit about how to write their own stories. We're talking about true stories. I'm back. This is Andrea again. Today, I'm your host. So lies are the new norm in our world. There's probably a bumper sticker that says lies are the new truth. Great bumper sticker, but I'm totally freaked out which is why this episode is about truth and lies. We're talking about lies in stories and lies in the world. I want to start with a story that got me thinking about truth and lies in storytelling, and when, if ever, is lying fair game. This story is by a new student, Claudia Franklin. This is a story I've told over and over in a memoir I wrote in the 80s and then shelved, and again in the 90s while in grad school. So here it goes. My favorite story about my father. Every year, father organized a road trip to some distant destination in Peru. He wanted to show his children the country they were born in, and he wanted to make the country his own. We were foreigners in Peru, German and therefore suspect. My parents were small children during the war, not war criminals, but everyone still thought we were Nazis. In 1968, there was a nationalist revolution. After that, we were no longer welcome, not only because we were presumed to be Nazis, but simply because we were white interlopers, colonialistas, Yankees. For about four years, my father persisted, struggling to find some way to stay. He had come to Peru at 21. Peru was home. He loved the ceviche, the poems of Cesar Vallejo, the desert and the Pacific. Always a charmer, he enjoyed the daily challenge of making himself visible and known to people who distrusted him. If he could have figured out a way to stay, we would have never left. There's always this other life that runs alongside the one I live, the one I could have lived if father had had more courage. Of course, it took endless courage to leave, but the perpetual 14-year-old in me, the one who lost friends, a home, and a language, is changing Peru for cracked and bleeding lips in frozen, friendless Montreal. That teen wants my father to have fixed it somehow. I think it was early in 1972 when we drove up the coast to Puerto Pizarro. Francisco Pizarro, the conquistador who had discovered Peru, had landed there, and Father wanted to see the spot. A hotel right on the beach was supposed to be lovely. It was maybe a three-day drive away from Lima, so we spent the first night in Trujillo at a hotel. When we got out to the car the next morning, it was sitting on bricks, the wheels and lug nuts missing. Here, I should explain that my father drove an imported baby blue Ford. The problem with a Ford in Peru in the early 70s is that its parts were not easy to replace. This was the end of our vacation. My mother began to cry. God damn it, what an awful country, furchtbar. But father smoked a Marlboro and walked around the car, looking at the damage. 
Then he squashed the cigarette with the tip of his shoe and said to my mother, this is what we're going to do. You are going back into the hotel with the little ones. I'll take Claudia. I have an idea. You might be able to find the wheels, but not the lug nuts, not in Trujillo. Mother was emotional, but also very smart. Trust me, he said, winking at her. Off he marched into the center of town, me in tow, trying to keep up. I was 11. He ducked into a gas station, bodegas, garages, while I waited outside. He stopped people on the street and told them his story. Where would they go if they were in his situation? They pointed and gave directions, suggesting this place and that. It took many hours. From a one-legged man with a pushcart, we bought a warm Coke and an empanada. We walked towards the center of town and then back out to the periphery. A car drove by us at one point, almost grazing me. Someone yelled out the window, Yankee, go home. Hijo de puta, father yelled back and pulled me towards him. I enjoyed being Robin to my father's Batman, Holmes to his Sherlock. Eventually, father came out of one garage and said, I know where we need to go. He was smiling. Keep your fingers crossed. We walked another half hour. By the bodega, I bought a chocolate ice cream. Father asked directions. He had an address, a name, Don Mario, un mecanico. We ended up in a large aluminum shed that was dirty and foul-smelling. Wall-to-wall tires, cycles of all kinds, old and new, fenders and hubcaps, some shiny, others rusty. A man walked towards us who had not shaven in days. He wiped his greasy hands on stained overalls. How can I help you, mi estimado señor y señorita? Peruvians are extraordinarily polite. You must be Don Mario. Es un placer. A pleasure. I'm looking for four wheels and 24 lug nuts for a Ford. They would have arrived this morning. I don't carry stolen merchandise, said Don Mario, and turned away. Father said, Your children must be on vacation. Mine are. We're trying to get to Puerto Pizarro. It's muy lindo allí. It's so beautiful there. Then my father added, Ayúdeme. Help me. The man looked at my father, took a cigarette out of his pocket, and lit it. Then he said, Mil. A thousand. Eight hundred, said my father. Two hundred for each wheel and the lug nuts. He pulled a wallet out of his pocket. Okay, said Don Mario. I'll do it for you because you're a nice gringo. Then he pressed a lever to the side of the cashier box. The drawer popped open. Every cubby in the drawer was full of lug nuts. He pulled out 24 and handed them to my father. By the next day, we were in Puerto Pizarro. The hotel was still under construction, so the windows were not in. The wind lifted the sand off the beach, and you would find it in your bed but you could take a boat out and look at the coastline from the water and see it the way Pizarro must have, a long line of sand and then nothing but sky. It was beautiful. Of course, none of it is true. Yes, the wheels and lug nuts were stolen. So far, so good.
but we never made it to Puerto Pizarro. The next day, the baby blue Ford was taken back to Lima by truck. We stayed in Trujillo for another day and then took a bus back home. There were chickens on the bus. My parents bickered. My mother acted as if it was all my father's fault, and for him, she was too much to deal with on top of everything else. My brother Peter and I fought because I thought he had stolen my retainer, which I must have left in Trujillo. Mother and father were angry with me. I was always losing expensive things. They had recently given me a Kodak camera, which I almost forgotten to afford, retrieving it in the last minute before it was hoisted onto the flatbed. I was hoping to take pictures to show my friends Irma, Ursula, and Milagros, but I never took any. I first made up this story 30 years ago. Over time, I completely forgot that it was made up. Because I told it so many times, it had this ring of the truth. It seemed to capture the father I wanted, a father who was savvy, determined, and courageous. I had this compulsive need to repeat it, retell it. It's only sitting down to write it out one more time that I realized that all of it is a lie, including the one-legged man selling empanadas. They were delicious. I think I needed and wanted my father to be a superhero, not the henpecked father he was. I wanted a father who could get us to Puerto Pizarro and keep us in Peru. The narrator lies to create the stories she wished were true. She wanted her dad to be different. She wanted her dad to keep her family in Peru. She tells us she lies and why. When I first heard this story, I was like, what? No, she didn't just do that. I felt a little deceived. Well, wait, I felt a lot deceived because I totally went along with her fantasy. Like, wow, how awesome. He got the tires back. But then it was like, yay, she did that to me. Because believing what wasn't true was part of her point. But then Claudia's story made me wonder, do we trust her as a narrator? For the last 15 years since I took my first memoir writing class, I lived by the tenet I learned from my very first writing teacher, Terry Silverman. Terry said, don't let the facts get in the way of the truth. I took that to mean that it was okay to exaggerate or change little facts for the sake of a bigger emotional truth. This is not quite what Claudia Franklin did in her story. She bullshits, then admits it to make a bigger point. But it made me think of the ways we lie and whether or not it's ever okay in storytelling. There's an unspoken pact between a memoir writer and reader or listener. This pack says that what's being shared is the truth. But what is the truth? I mean, what does the truth really mean? In 2003, James Fry wrote a book called A Million Little Pieces. The book was distributed as memoir. But Fry stretched the truth in a few places. One example is he wrote that he spent 87 days in jail. According to police records, he served five hours. 
Maybe Fry would argue that those five hours felt like 87 days. But I would argue that Fry broke the pact. 87 days, that's too much of an exaggeration. That's bullshit. A lot of people thought he lied, including Oprah. I wrote a story once about taking my wife Vicky to a tantric sex retreat. The story's about how I couldn't handle the intimacy and acted like a clown the whole time. So Vicky and I are there with eight other couples. On the first day, we have to look into each other's eyes for a long time. Already I can't handle it. Then our instructor plays this song on our boombox, which we have to listen to while looking into each other's eyes. Then she asks us to sing along once we learn the words. The song goes, Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. I will never forget you. I will never forsake you. I had trouble with the song. In the story, I wrote about how I couldn't look into Vicky's eyes and sing that song. I laughed so hard, I cried. We had to do all these intimacy-building exercises like that one. The worst was this Tai Chi exercise where, in the privacy of our hotel rooms, we were instructed to stand facing our partners. Actually, we were instructed to face our beloved. Just the word beloved cracked me up. So we had to stand naked, facing our beloved, and we'd learned these Tai Chi moves earlier that started with pelvic thrusts back and forth. So we had to do those pelvic thrusts back and forth, then arm motions with elbows in and hands out to the sides. I added jazz hands. The thing is, I didn't actually add jazz hands with Vicky there in our hotel room. I wish I had. In the story I wrote, I added jazz hands because I thought jazz hands perfectly expressed my feelings about the exercise. Allison challenged me on this point. I tell the truth. You don't tell the truth. I do. Uh, what about jazz hands? <laughs> How about when you told me to tell, take out cr- my son used crayons on his pants and put in markers? All right. I get it. I get it. Okay. But that's the thing. Like the truth is you thought your son was ruining his pants And when you wrote that he was ruining his pants by coloring on them with crayons, I was like, that's not ruining your pants. You can just wash that out. So I was like, exchanged the word crayons for markers. Sharpies. Sharpies is better. But he didn't use a Sharpie. He used crayons. I wouldn't be telling the truth. I think Sharpies gets closer to the emotional truth. And so does inventing a whole day with your father who bought back his stolen tires, like Claudia did in the story you heard earlier. At least this is what I used to think. Because here's what's fucking me up. I've been preaching don't let the facts get in the way of the truth for years. And before this past presidential election, I used to think there was truth and lies and that people could tell the difference. Now I'm not so sure. Because now something has shifted in our culture. And it would be weird to talk about truth in this episode without talking about what's happening in the world outside of stories. So now we don't know what we're getting from America's highest office. There's the one about how there were three to five million illegal votes for Clinton, or the one about how the president's inaugural crowd was the largest ever, or the one about how the Muslim ban isn't a ban and isn't about Muslims and is the same ban Obama implemented anyway. And now with the normalization of all these lies, no one knows what to believe. 
the truth stretching and storytelling that used to be okay for me doesn't feel as okay anymore. Now I'm afraid no one's going to believe my stories. What Terry said, don't let the facts get in the way of the truth, is happening more than ever. But outside of the boundaries of storytelling, no one's letting the facts get in the way of their truth. And that feels so dangerous. So in a panic, I went to the source. I called Terry Silverman herself, my mentor, to ask her if storytellers can be trusted anymore. Thanks for um, being, being uh, on my call. Thank you so much for inviting me. I want to ask you... Um... We talked for a while about the first time we met when I took her class 15 years ago. You said, don't let the facts get in the way of the truth. So I want to ask you if you still believe, don't let the facts get in the way of the truth. And where did you get that concept? So the irony and the fascinating thing about that quote is, I have no recollection of saying that. And so we don't know whether I actually did say that or that was your interpretation of what my mentor taught me, which was truth is fiction because memory is subjective. So you're saying you said truth is fiction and from there I invented this really beautifully perfectly said quote, don't let the facts get in the way of the truth by Terry Silverman? Since there wasn't actually a camera there, neither of us know, but we don't actually have a true record of whether I did say that and I don't remember it, or because that doesn't sound like me, or that that was your interpretation. But, you know, then that really is an exact example of precisely what we're talking about. So what I learned from my mentor, Dennis Klontz, who really took my hand because I would get shut down, suicidal, and eat so many donuts, I thought I would die every time I had to write. His tenet was that truth is fiction because memory is subjective and that when we are writing, it is truth plus imagination because when an event has happened, we watch it, it goes into our brain, it's changed once. It goes down on paper, it has changed twice. And in the act of writing, we are coming both from our truth as well as our imagination. Terry's mentor freed her up. He allowed her to follow her imagination to get to her truth. So I confessed about my jazz hands. Yes, so it is your your imagination was adding to that based on, oh, I know that my hands, you know, were doing something, you know, funny or silly. So then you your imagination told you, okay, well, if I make jazz hands, then that makes it a really definitive, concrete moment about how I felt in that moment. Okay. Um, you told me that you told a story the other day about um, the Beatles yes. and you and you did sort of a jazz hands moment. I was with a group of girls that loved the Beatles and while there weren't actually rules, 
at that time, there were things that to me seemed like rules that I really had to learn and, and absorb to be one of the Beatle girls. So when I was writing the piece, I formalized it and I wrote Beatle girl rules. And I also wrote that I took an oath. So there's a truth in that, in that that's the way it made me feel. But the actual event, it, you know, a formal me raising my hand, you know, swearing my love and devotion to Paul McCartney forever didn't actually happen, but that's what it felt like. And okay, so you understand and I understand that all your listeners, all your readers understand that whether or not that actually happened, that doesn't matter. They're following you through your storytelling and they're, and they're getting it, right? So what I'm getting at is I'm afraid that in today's culture, there's because we've been lied to so often outside of storytelling, I'm not sure that people can decipher the difference between like a real truth and emotional truth or whether that matters. And, do you, and I'm asking you, do you think there's a danger now? I'm guessing that you're talking about politics. Yes. And I think... You know, first of all, the that's a completely separate because that isn't storytelling, nor um, are they saying what they're saying for the reason that we tell stories. We tell stories because, first of all, the writer, the storyteller, is trying to understand something. They are grappling with something. That's what propels them to write. Politics, political speeches, um, news what the politician, you know, what the administration right now is saying, that's all manipulation and propaganda. They are not coming from the intention of a storyteller. Oh, that makes me feel so much better. Thank God. <sighs> yes. And, you know, to think of your own... Uh... The rules are different in storytelling and politics. Intentions are different. The intention in storytelling is what matters. And the number one intention of the memoir writer is to get to his or her truth. I love this woman. Everything Terry said makes me realize why it felt like James Fry broke the pact. Because we question his intention. He didn't seem to be going after a bigger truth. If anything has changed for storytellers because of the lying culture we've been thrust into lately, I think it's that now, more than ever, we need jazz hands and sharpies and oaths of love and devotion to Paul McCartney. So when do you think it's okay to bullshit? We want to hear from you. Send us your thoughts on Twitter at WRTG Class Radio or on our Facebook page or email us info at writingclassradio.com. Thank you for listening. If you love this podcast, tell your friends. And thank you, Terry Silverman. I took Terry's class for five years and use everything I learned from Terry when I teach my class. The only reason I don't take her class today is because I moved from L.A. where she teaches. If you live in L.A., find her online at creativerights.com. She spells it creative, R-I-T-E-S. If you want to hear your story on our show, enter our writing contest. Here's the prompt. 
write about something you don't understand. For example, I don't understand why lies have become okay, or I don't understand why I'm not famous. For more details on our writing contest, visit our website, writingclassradio.com. Writing Class Radio is produced by Virginia Laura, Diego Saldana Rojas, Allison Langer, and me, Andrea Askowitz. Theme music by Daniel Correa. Additional music by Josh Woodward and Kevin McLeod. Writing Class Radio is sponsored by and recorded at the University of Miami School of Communication. There's more writing class on our website. Study the stories we study and listen to our craft talks. If you don't want to participate in our writing contest but still want a prompt, pick one of our daily prompts from our website or follow us on Twitter where we post prompts daily. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.